Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Some of you would know that before I was a pastor, I was actually a school teacher. Let me tell you about one of my worst days. It was my first day teaching a grade 1-2 class. It was a school in Guelph. It was my first day there. And, and I began that class in mid-October. That class had been through a, a number of teachers. They basically had supply teachers from the beginning of school until the point that I got there. And I le- quickly learned why. When I arrived there, I met the class. Really sweet kids. Again, they're this big. And uh, one, of the, one of the kids was a little boy named James. And some of the other teachers that I met had warned me about James. And my first day there started pretty normally. We gather on the carpet. We do the calendar, we introduce ourselves, and we sort of talk about the classroom rules. Now, my classroom management system in those days was you get three warnings, and then you you get a timeout. You go sit on the timeout chair. If you get three timeouts in one day, you get a phone call home because we need to chat with mom and dad. Well, during this conversation on the carpet, James wasn't having it. And he was playing with toys on the shelf and markers and chalk and stuff. And he just got up and he decided to walk around. James just wasn't having it. He was, James was doing his own thing. Well, in no time, James had a timeout and he wouldn't go. He wouldn't go sit in the chair. And so like the whole system was broken. All the rules of society in the classroom had broken down. The kids are looking at me. I'm looking at the kids and they're all looking at James. Like, is there any consistency? Is there any order in this classroom? And um, before, like within a few minutes, the principal had shown up with a couple of other teachers in order to take James and bring him away to the office. So James, knowing what was going on, knowing what was about to happen, he came up with this brilliant plan. And in his grade one mind, he thought he can protect himself. And so he reaches over to a table and he grabs a bottle of white glue and he unscrews the lid and he pours the entire, he squeezes the entire bottle of glue out onto the floor in a circle around himself. And as he's doing it, he's singing, you can't catch me, you can't catch me. And he's like setting this trap for the grown-ups. In his kid mind, he thinks that a grown-up is going to set foot on the glue and they're going to be stuck forever and he'll get to escape. Well, the principal and the teachers, they, they uh, escorted him out of the room and he kept singing, you can't catch me, you can't catch me, as he there dragging him down the hallway to the office where he spent uh, a good portion of the day. By the way, all of this happened in the first 10 minutes of my school day, my first day at that school. So that was a rough day. But I'll tell you what got me through that school day. Here's what, what got me through that school day was telling myself, man, I can't wait to never have to teach another kid so that I can work in a church and be a pastor and serve God all day. I can't wait to be out of here serving God all day. In just a little while, God, it's going to be just you and me, and I'll get to serve you full time. I won't have to worry about kids. That's what I thought. Somewhere along the lines, I learned that church is the ultimate way to serve God. To be a pastor is like the ultimate calling and everybody else has jobs. You you with me? Like everybody's just got jobs to do, but a pastor has got a calling. That's That's what I thought. Now, of course, I don't believe that now, but I did in those days. In fact, that's not rare. 
that's actually a very common idea that like the jobs that happen in church are like up here and everything else is kind of down here. And today I want to correct that by talking about vocation. Vocation. Now today we're wrapping up our series enough where we've been talking about how we're in a culture where we're immersed in consumerism and comparison and uh, competition. And this is just the, the air that we breathe. And it makes it impossible for us to feel content with where we are, who we are, and what we have. And what we've been doing over these last couple of weeks is talking about how God comes and he actually has given us some really amazing gifts. And, and so in the first week when we were together, we talked about the gift that it is to have God's own words, that the scripture is actually enough. And then last week when we were together, we talked about the, the gift of, that it is to have God's people, that, that community is enough. And this morning, I've been really excited to share this message. We're talking about the gift of a calling. We're talking about how to, to have a God-given vocation is enough. It's enough. So what do we mean by vocation? Let's just get on the same page. What do we mean by vocation? Well, it's a, it comes from an old Latin word, vocatio, from where we get the, like a voice or, a, or a, a call or a calling. In fact, before the Reformation, people used to use the word uh, vocation only in reference to priests, okay? And then people like Martin Luther came along and, they said, and he said something radical like this. This is from Martin Luther. He said, there is no true basic difference between laymen and priests princes and bishops, between religious and secular. He said, a cobbler, a smith, a peasant, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. Do you hear that? All of them alike are priests and bishops. So a vocation is any kind of role or life situation in which we are called to work and to bless others. In fact, he calls average people like you and I, he calls us priests. And we're going to come back to that idea later. But the thing to see here is that whatever your role, okay, whatever the work is that you find yourself doing, that's a vocation. Okay, if you're a spouse or a parent, that's a vocation. If, uh, if you're a neighbor or if you're a citizen of Hamilton, that's a vocation. If you're a member of Benediction Church, you have a vocation, okay? If you have work to do, that is, whether it's paid or it's unpaid, that's a vocation. So it's any kind of work that God calls us to do here and now. That's what we mean by vocation. Now, the next question, does everyone have one? In other words, is there like a specific job that God has predestined you for, or, or is it up to you to figure it out? So, I don't know about you, I have no problem with it if he does. If that's how God works, I have no problem with the idea that God has specifically chosen who is going to do what work. In fact, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 7, this is the Apostle Paul writing, he says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, not, uh, just as God has called them. So what's important here is that the Apostle shows us that he assumes that each of us has a station from God. Do you see that in the text there? God has a station for each of us. Some other versions say calling or situation. 
And that's the station that we've got because God assigned it. Do you see that there in the text? God assigned it to us in that way. And so the question, in a sense, the question, does God choose a vocation for us? Sure, sure he does. But will God call you to that vocation? Like, should you expect that God is going to call you to whatever your vocation is? Well, maybe. Now, the Apostle Paul certainly experienced that. If you know his story, he experienced a very sort of spectacular call on the road to Damascus to be a preacher. But that isn't normal, okay? God certainly may do that, and it would really be cool if he did, but I think it can actually cost us a lot of time and a lot of stress in our lives if we assume and expect that that's how we're going to end up in the vocation that God has for us. Uh, I actually agree with Eugene Peterson, who's a, a pastor who's since passed away. He says that the key to living vocationally Okay, Eugene Peterson says, the key to living vocationally, that is being God-called, spirit-anointed, isn't getting the right job or career, but doing king work in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. So yes, uh, everybody has a vocation, but vocation isn't something to find. Think of it this way, vocation is kind of, it's something that we find ourselves in. All right. So even if we don't experience a call, like a big miraculous, spectacular call, each of us still has a calling. Each of us has a, has a vocation. Now let's go to the scripture and see where did our vocations come from? Where did vocation come from? So let's do a little bit of biblical theology here, okay? Let's go back all the way to the beginning and see what God's plan, what God's design was in the garden. In the garden, God makes mankind in his image, and he gives them this assignment. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over all the creatures in the sea and the sky and the land. Okay, so man's mission, man's purpose there, his job is he's going to do the things that God does. Bless, create, rule, multiply, fill the earth with God's image. That's kind of the, his, his purpose. That's the, that's the job of mankind, to continue God's work of creation. In chapter 2, there's, there's, they're given specific work. And, so, and we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, the man has a vocation. He's, his job is to work it, to work the garden, and to take care of it. To work it and to take care of it. There's these rhythms like producing from the garden and, and protecting the garden, watching over the garden and working the garden, uh, cultivating the garden and, and guarding the garden. In fact, from there, God even gives him some parameters, almost like a, like a contract, spelling out the conditions of his work, where there's this, this tree whose fruit he's not supposed to eat. And, and God creates a woman and she has work to do too. She's got a vocation. God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Other versions say like a, like a partner. It's the idea here of, of this equal partner, this, this uh, complement. And right there in the garden, there is work and there's vocation for them both. There's differentiation in the work that they're going to do. Clearly, work isn't a curse. Okay? Work is good. 
Obviously, it doesn't stay that way for long. In in chapter 3, we get to the the fall of humanity. We see that everything is ruined, and God's curse comes upon the ground, uh, so that whereas uh, Adam's vocation was meant to be productive and and life-giving, now it's going to be painful and frustrating, because there's thistles, and the ground is hard, and it's hot out, and all of this stuff. And so the vocation of Adam is cursed. And, and God puts a curse on the partnership that exists between the man and the woman too. Eve is the helper. She's the partner. And now she and Adam are going to be in competition for dominion and authority. That's just never going to end until the, until the restoration. The relationship between them is going to be painful and frustrating. Whereas she's also got this vocation as the life bearer, the life bringer, Even childbearing now is going to be painful and frustrating for her too. So notice their work is cursed, okay? There's a curse on the work, but having work to do isn't itself the curse. You with me on that so far? That's that's, that's quite important. Now in the next generation, things get worse and there's a rivalry between Cain and Abel and the source of the rivalry is the work that they do. It's jealousy over the work and one of them ends up murdered. A few generations later, mankind thinks that they can work themselves out of their need for God. And they're going to work hard and collaborate together and build this massive tower at at Babel. And and you're familiar with that story, I think. And things get worse and worse and worse on and on and on until Jesus comes and he restores the dignity of work in his teaching, like in his parables, and ultimately by his death and his resurrection. And on the cross, we see that Jesus doesn't save us from work, okay? Jesus didn't die to save us from the work that we have to do. Jesus saves us from the effects of the curse, including how the curse has made work painful and frustrating. And so, so Jesus invites us to work for him, and he gives us a new commission. In fact, he gives us his spirit and he gives us all kinds of these spiritual gifts so that we're going to be able to be fruitful and multiply again and and like join him in the mission or the purpose that he gave mankind in the very very beginning that's where we are now and someday we're told in scripture that jesus is coming back and when he does heaven and earth will meet there will be this reunion of heaven and earth there will be no more death no more pain or fatigue, but there will be work to do. So check this out. This is, the, this is the voice of the prophet Isaiah talking about what he sees in his vision about the new creation. He says in Isaiah chapter 65, this is just such a beautiful passage. Isaiah 65, Isaiah says that they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will, in, will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now, you call that heaven if you want to, but let's understand we don't go to heaven in order to retire from work. 
okay? It, this is a, a new heaven and a new earth. It's a new garden. It's a new creation. And there is beautiful work for us to do there. There is designing and, and building and planting and farming. And, and uh, we're going to enjoy the work of our hands, the prophet says. That's a, that's a gift. And that's how we're going to spend eternity. And so as we step back and the whole story is told, we, what we see about work is that work is God's idea. Okay? Work is God's idea. It's good. And our vocations are good. Our, our vocation is how we participate in God's work of renewing the earth. All right? Our work, our vocation, is how each of us is participating in God's project, God's work of renewing the earth. And, and so what I want to do is just spend the rest of the time that we have in this message just showing some reasons why vocation matters, why it matters to believe that you have a God-given vocation. I've got four reasons, four reasons why it matters to see our work as a vocation. The first one is that vocation changes why we work, all right? It changes the reason why we work. Now, people work for all kinds of reasons, all kinds of motivations drive people's work. One is greed, okay? People are motivated by greed. They choose a career that asks uh, very little of them, but it has the potential to make them very rich so that they can afford the, the lifestyle that they, they think that they deserve. Uh, another motivation is approval. Some of us might have grown up in homes where mom and dad put a lot of pressure on us to live out or choose a certain career path. And rather than risk offending or insulting them, we actually choose that path and we do the work that they wanted, not the work that we wanted for ourselves. We're working for their approval. We're working to please them. And of course, some of us are just workaholics. Some of us are, are, are motivated to do the work that we do because work has become our identity. Our work is our identity. Like, if I'm not a nurse, or if I'm not a mom, or if I'm not a student, I don't know who I am. I don't have anything else to talk about. And so workaholism is, is what happens when, no matter how long, or no matter how, how hard you work, it's never done. It's never done. There's always more to do. In fact, you're kind of worried that any minute now, they're going to find someone who's better than you at this job and replace you. And so what's important here is that the gospel actually confronts all of these. You know, the, the gospel comes and says to greed, like, money isn't bad. There's nothing wrong per, per se with money, but it's a lousy God. And the gospel frees us to serve in our vocation free from greed as a motivation. And the gospel confronts approval. And because like, yes, we should honor our parents. Absolutely. But we have to live our lives, not theirs. And once you know that you already have God's approval, then that frees you to serve him with your vocation in ways that bless all kinds of people, including your parents, but not only them. And, and think of workaholism. The gospel says that we no longer have to prove our worth. We don't have to prove our value because Jesus has already done that. All the work is finished. And, and, we, and so we are not our work. Our work is not our identity. And we're free now to do our work. We're, for, we're free to do our vocation because good work is its own reward. Okay? Good work is its own reward. There's a whole book of the Bible about it. It's called Ecclesiastes. Here's a couple of, uh, of verses from it. In chapter 2, the, the teacher says, 
that there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is, a, is from the hand of God. A little later, he says in chapter 3, he says, What do workers gain from their toil? I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. And so we work because work is good, because work is a life-giving endeavor. Yes, sin can, can mess it up, but the gospel frees us from sin so that we can live out our vocations for the right reasons, okay? There's a second difference that it makes to believe in vocation. It's this. It's that vocation shapes how we work. It shapes how we work. In Colossians chapter 3, we have this verse from the Apostle Paul. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Okay, that's Colossians 3. And so whatever, uh, whatever you do, you work at it as though you are working for Christ. You do it as working for the Lord rather than a human boss. That means Jesus is Lord of your work. Okay, you get that? Jesus is Lord of your work. We work hard for him. We work diligently and reliably and honestly and patiently. We do that for him. We don't cheat or steal from the company because that would be stealing and, and, and cheating him. In fact, how we work matters even if others don't work hard. You with me on that? Even if other people are lazy and take shortcuts, how we work matters. And every, every day, it seems to me, every day we have to choose whether we're going to do the bare minimum or if we're going to work as working for the Lord. Now, if we compare ourselves to others, if we're constantly comparing ourselves, it'll be easy to justify doing less or taking shortcuts because that's what everybody does. It's like, they don't put in overtime, why should I? My boss never asks them to come in and work on weekends, why should I? They all take shortcuts and when I do a good job, I get punished for it. Why should I even try? But we don't compare ourselves to other workers. We don't answer to them. We're not judged uh, based on how our work compares to theirs. In fact, listen to this from Romans 14. In Romans 14, God's word says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? <clears throat> or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. What he's saying there is when the time comes for God to judge us and judge the work that we've done, he's not going to care if we've made the most sales. He's not going to care that we, we had the best grades. It's not, did I do better than this person or that person? It's, did I do what I could? Like, even if no one else sees, even if nobody else recognizes it, God knows, God recognizes it. And once you know that, once you know that our work is judged by God, not our colleagues, you work differently. Knowing that we have a vocation, that changes how we work. Well, the third reason it matters to see our work as a vocation is this. It affects how we respond when our work is disappointing. All right? Knowing that you have a vocation, it affects how we respond when the work is disappointing. 
And like, let's just be honest, some days work is disappointing. Sometimes it feels boring or it feels monotonous or it feels trivial or frustrating. Uh, other days you're working hard on something and it's just like, it seems like nobody else notices or cares about this thing that you're really excited about. So work is very often disappointing. I remember when I first became a teacher, I was surprised by how little of my week I actually spent teaching relative to how much time I was spending in meetings, marking stuff, dealing with you know drama between kids, writing report cards, dealing with parents. Like very seldom does it feel like you're just crushing it at work and doing the thing that you're put here to do. Very often you find it's just frustrating. Your work is painful and frustrating. But all work is like that on, on this side. Isn't that true? All of our work is like that. Who, who of us doesn't have to wait for people to answer their emails or, or call us back? Like, or like a deal falls through or, or a client doesn't show up for a meeting or the network goes down or the, the boss has it out for you or that a, the, you know, one of your coworkers quits and you inherit their, their, all of their jobs and responsibilities. And it's like, man, why do I bother? What is the point? This is so frustrating. It is so disappointing. And for a lot of people, that's where it ends. But if you believe you have a vocation, you know something that other people don't know. If you, have a, if you know that you have a vocation, you know why things are this way. You know the story. Of course, work is a mess. In fact, it's worse than a mess. Work is cursed but it's going to be okay. Because you know that it's not always going to be this way. You know that Christ is risen and all these frustrations someday will be gone. And so we can handle disappointment because we know this isn't the kingdom. This isn't the end. In fact, God's word tells us, this is 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you hear that? Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's, it matters. Your work matters. And so let nothing move you. What, what can move a person who knows that their work isn't in vain? If you know that it has purpose and it's going to last and it's important, nothing can move you. Well, one more reason it matters to see our work as a vocation is this. This is number four. It's a gift that God gives the world. Your vocation is a gift that God gives the world. So let's come back to this idea of, of priests for a minute. I don't know if you know what a priest is. Uh, when I was a kid, I went to a Roman Catholic school, and the priest was uh, the man who wore a white collar, black shirt, robes, and he wasn't allowed to have a family because he was too busy serving God. In fact, when he would show up to our classroom to visit and, and you know, talk to us about God, we were all on our best behavior because we were scared of him because we didn't want to disappoint or upset this guy who was so holy. Well, listen to what scripture says. This is from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, the apostle, says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him 
who called you. You know, in the Old Testament, a priest was a member of a select, you know, elite group of people who were qualified to go before God and make an offering and offer, give a sacrifice to God on behalf of others. And after, because of that sacrifice, it was thought that God was going to bless the community. But they were only a very select few people. After Jesus, after Jesus, who's the priests? We are. After Jesus, we are the priests. All of us, every follower of Jesus is a priest. We offer our lives, we offer our work. That's the gift, that's the sacrifice that we offer. And through it, God blesses other people. God blesses the community. God blesses the world. Think of it this way. The, the culture needs good, honest workers. Think of lawyers, okay? The, 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 the culture is well served if we've got good, honest lawyers, all right? Good lawyers serve the, the common good. But a lawyer who also sees himself or herself as a priest, that person brings Jesus into the legal system. That person brings Christ into each case, into the, each, each courtroom. Okay? A good teacher is a blessing to the, to the culture. It's, a good teacher is important and helpful for the common good. But a teacher priest is someone who brings the presence of God, the image of God, into the schools, into each classroom, into the education system itself. A trucker priest, a trucker priest is someone who spreads God's image uh, across the highway, across borders. A salesman priest is someone who spreads God's image into to business and the marketplace. An artist priest is someone who brings God's image back to the arts where it belongs, and on and on and on. You're priests. Martin Luther, at the beginning of the Reformation, he used to say, he used to say that a vocation is actually the mask that God wears as God works through us, hiding behind us. Here's what he said. He said, God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he doesn't want to do so. What else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, or in government, but that, which, but that by which he wants to uh, give his gifts in the fields at home and everywhere else. These are the masks of God. Okay? Our vocations, he says, these are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and to do all things. So, see, this is how God blesses a culture. People who serve him in their vocation and the, the others who are blessed through them. Okay? So your vocation, it's a gift that God gives the world. Now, we've been talking about these four differences that it makes when you know that your work is a vocation. Let me finish with this. Um, some years ago, Heather and I had a decision that we had to make because our daughter Maggie, who's now 15, she was, this is about 14 years back now. Maggie was almost a year old and Heather's maternity, maternity leave was coming up and we had to figure out, is she going to go back to work full time? Is she going to go back part time? Should she, should she quit? Should we take Maggie and just put her in, in daycare? Should we bring her, is there a friend who, sh who could look after her during the week while the rest of us do our work? In my perfect world, uh, Heather would quit her job, stay home and look after Maggie so that I could continue teaching, finish seminary, 
and then quit, get a job in a church, and we would have it made. Because I still believed that ministry was a calling and everything else was a job. Like, for me to enter a church, to work as a pastor, that was a really big deal. For Heather to quit her job, that's not that big a deal. Now, then we had an idea, what if I stay home with Maggie? And, and so that's, that's actually what we did. I, and I, that's when I retired from teaching, and I spent about the next year and a half uh, as a stay-at-home dad. And this is where I learned how wrong that I'd been. Because the first few months were, were kind of hard because we would go places. I was so focused on church. I wasn't really focused too much on parenting. But we'd go places and we would meet people who would make all kinds of assumptions about me. They'd assume that I was fired. They'd assume, they assumed that I was like lazy or that I was just, I, I couldn't get a job or I couldn't keep a job. Some of them called me Mr. Mom. As though being with Maggie is like this consolation job, but it's not real work. It's not valuable. And that's when I realized, like, I may end up being a pastor someday. Maybe not. Maybe I will. But this is my vocation for now, right? For now, parenting is my vocation. Maggie is my vocation. And about the, the same time, I also realized that Heather's work is a vocation too. So in case you don't know, Heather, my wife, works as a registered dietitian at McMaster Kids Hospital. She's on a team of doctors and nurses and social workers, and she serves kids with various GI issues. And she's good at it. She's actually really good at it. And when I used to compare our work, she always lost because I had the trump card because my work was for Jesus and hers was just a job. And I was so wrong <clears throat> because I realized of all the people who could be doing this work, God chose her. And he put her in this place at this time. And she is this like dietitian priest and over the years, hundreds of kids, hundreds of families have been loved and blessed through Heather. Like she works as working for the Lord and he's doing all kinds of amazing things through her that he would certainly never do through me and through, the, through my vocation. And so we need both. I don't need to compete with, with Heather. I don't need to compare our work. Both of our vocations matter equally. Both are holy. Okay? Both are a gift. Your vocation, whatever your vocation is, your vocation is holy and it's a gift. And when you see your vocation as God's gift, that saves us a lot of complaining, saves us a lot of com comparison, a lot of competition. It is mind-blowing. To know that you have a God-given vocation is enough. It's enough. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Music